Good morning again. You guys doing all right? Feeling good? I mean, how can you not be pumped up after worship like that? It's about ready to jump out of my skin back there. Um, you know, one guy that, that uh, didn't mention uh, someone who's really worked their tail off in this place was the guy who was talking. It'd be weird, right, to say, and all these people, and then me, ha <laughs> you know. So uh, he uh, humbly declined from that. But let me tell you, Aaron Philbrin, his family, his wife, they have been incredibly involved down here in getting this place together. Aaron, I think he, I was messing with the projector earlier. He's like, I got seven hours of work into that thing right now. I was like, oh, my bad. I'll get out of here. I got no work in it. But um, thank you, brother. You have, man, you have been inspiring. You have worked hard. And, um, and so much of this has come together because of you and your efforts. And Glory to God for you and for your wife allowing you to come down and spend all that time down here working on that stuff, man. Thank you, bro. Um, if you are new to us, uh, we've been examining the, the book of Acts line by line in a sermon series called You Will Be My Witnesses. Uh, currently, we've been focusing on a story called The Lame Beggar Healed, which is a really, really long story in Scripture. Um, it basically spans from chapter 3, verse 1, all the way to 431. And I just got to give you a little recap so I can give you some context for where we're at. I don't like doing a lot of recap stuff, but I'm going to spend a little time threading it together because I didn't teach last week. Colby did. Thank you, Colby, for last week. You gave me a break. I was in Monterey suffering for Jesus. It was amazing. Um, yes, but anyways, the story begins with uh, the apostles Peter and John on their way to the temple uh, to pray, which was a, a thing that they did pretty regularly uh, before the church really took off. Uh, as they were going to the temple, they came across a lame beggar who was seeking alms by one of the entrances. The entrance was called the Beautiful Gate. Um, they actually healed the man, and a large crowd gathered uh, around to see what was going on. They were kind of blown away by this guy's shift from going from bed you know like mat ridden to up and dancing around and praising God and worshiping and so this large crowd sort of gathered up and then Peter and John led this crowd up into Solomon's portico which was a, a very large rectangular shaped area a colonnade with all these columns uh, he went up into that area Peter led these people and other people came over and they saw this guy that was healed everyone pretty much knew him they were blown away and Peter seized the moment and used it as an opportunity to preach Christ um, he preached that uh, Jesus was the reason for this man's healing, that it was faith in Christ that had healed this guy in the name of Jesus. Uh, and then he also told, told the folks that were there, these were a lot of Jews that were gathered, told them that it was ultimately them that, who had rejected their own Messiah, had crucified him, and yet that God had resurrected Jesus and that all these things were happening through the power and the Holy Spirit of Jesus. Um, so it was this amazing thing. He's preaching the gospel. He's preaching resurrection. And like 2,000 people get saved. And, and this was the second big, big uh, revival moment, if you will, in the book of Acts. The first one was at the day of Pentecost where 3,000 people were uh, saved and baptized. And then we have 2,000 at this thing. It was unbelievable. Now, the Sadducees, who were members of the Sanhedrin, which was the highest religious court, in the land, either saw them preaching or heard it through somebody. They were completely anti-resurrection. They rejected all things supernatural, uh, didn't believe in 
that people have a spirit, didn't believe in resurrection, didn't believe in angels, spiritual beings, and all these things. And so they heard these guys preaching about the resurrection, which is something they don't believe in. And this is a, a very large group. They were uh, in power. Um, many of us know who Caiaphas is and these religious leaders and stuff from the Gospels. Well, those guys weren't Pharisees. They were Sadducees. They were political slash religious leaders. So anyway, so a, a contingency of these Sadducees come over, and they've got the chief of police with them. And uh, they, like I said, they overheard Peter and John. They came over and then they arrested them for preaching resurrection and they threw them in jail for the night. Now, the next morning, the 71 members of the Sanhedrin gathered and then put Peter, John, and the formerly lame beggar in the middle of this court, which was in this place called the, the uh, Hall of Hewn Stone. They put them in the middle of this thing and they began to question them about their teaching. Hey, by what name did you teach? By what authority have you done these things? We're the religious leaders. We're the ones that authorized teaching. You guys are doing something. Apparently it's unauthorized. We didn't tell you you could do it. So they're basically questioning them big time. And uh, amazingly, Peter, who was filled with the Holy Spirit, uh, boldly explained to them that Jesus was the reason for the healing uh, it was faith in Jesus that had brought it about. The evidence was here. This man that everyone knew was standing next to them. And he did kind of the same thing he did on Pentecost as he did in, uh, in Solomon's portico in that there was a miracle that took place. There were miracles at Pentecost. He took the miracles and he pointed it all to Jesus. He did the same thing in the Hall of Hewn Stone with the entire Sanhedrin there. And so he, he kind of blew him out. And then he ended up wrapping it up with, and you guys, the religious leaders, you guys rejected the Messiah. You guys crucified and killed him, and yet God resurrected him. You didn't stop God's plan. You were used by God to fulfill his plan. It was this incredible thing. And the whole Sanhedrin was just blown away. Uh, they, they, just, they, they were blown away by how common these guys were. They were Galilean fishermen. They didn't have Armani on or anything like that. Uh, they you know, spoke with a Galilean vernacular, which was, hey, y'all, you know, I mean, they weren't, they weren't the extremely educated folks. Galilee wasn't known as that kind of region Judea was. And so these were common guys, and, and these religious leaders were blown away, man. They were like, what? Are you hearing what the, are you seeing the boldness, the courage of these men? They're standing before us. We are the ones that murdered and killed and arrested Jesus. We could do the same thing to them. And yet they're here preaching Jesus to us. We despise Jesus. I mean, they were blown away. Incredible thing that happened. Now, they really couldn't get anything on the apostles. I mean, there really just wasn't any clear case. Whatever they would have found, they would have had to have taken to, to Rome, to the Roman government, to Pontius Pilate again. They would have had to take their case before him. They really didn't have anything on them. I mean, they were just preaching the resurrection. And so ultimately they let them go, but not before warning them repeatedly. They didn't say, if you keep preaching or teaching in the name of Jesus, we'll do this to you. They just kept saying, don't do it anymore. Stop doing it is what they kept saying. So they warned them, don't speak the name of Jesus. Don't teach in the name of Jesus again. And then this morning, we're going to look at what happened next. We're going to look at what happened right after their release. So please take your Bibles and turn to Acts 4. We're going to be looking at uh, 23 to 31 this morning. Four twenty-three to 31. I'll read it aloud. 
And then I'll pray one more time and then we'll examine it together. 4.23 to 31. It says, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. These were members of the Sanhedrin. And when they heard it, that's the friends, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And then they said this in their prayer, For truly in this city there were gathered together against you, against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants, grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with what? All boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Father God, we come before you again one more time. I don't think that we're praying enough in churches anymore here and in church services, but you know what? We pray a lot, Lord. Thank you for the conviction to do that. God, we desperately need you in this moment. This is the moment where spiritual warfare really happens and begins to be made manifest and take place. When your word is rightly divided, Satan is there to rob, to steal, to destroy, to blind, to distract. Help us, Lord Jesus. May we be focused now, God, on you. We are simply hearing from you in this moment. You desire to speak to us. Have your way. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, the matchless name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Let's begin with 23. Twenty-three says, When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. The first thing we see after their release is that they went to their friends. Who were their friends? This is probably a reference to the other apostles and to the rest of the group that used to gather in the upper room before Pentecost. Uh, There is no reason for us to believe that they're not still using the upper room. Later on in Acts, you see it in use. And so this was a place where we would, what we would call the core group. This is the place where the core group of the church, this is essentially a core group of the church here. This is where the core group uh, tended to gather on occasion. These people were close. They were tight-knit. They'd done uh, many prayer times together before we saw in Acts 1 where they were coming together and praying before the day of Pentecost. So it looks like these are the friends, the small group maybe of 120 with the apostles, and they're gathered, I I would say, in the upper room. Now, friends may have included some of the people that were added to the church on the day of Pentecost. Uh, Some of these folks, obviously the church was exploding and growing, and it's it's at about 5,000 people now. 
uh, but they didn't have yet a place to gather as a large group. They didn't have a place, a setting that would facilitate or accommodate all of them at this point. Yet later, Solomon's portico became the place, but at this point in the narrative, they, they don't have a place, and so uh, it, we can deduce that this wasn't, friends didn't include the whole 5,000 of the church. This was the smaller group, the core group probably of 120 in the upper room. Now, friends is a specific reference to those that are in Christ. Friends excludes here in this context those who are not in Christ. These are those who are in Christ. Jesus himself called his own disciples his friends in Luke 12, 4. So these are Christians who are gathered, probably the 120, maybe give or take a few, probably in the upper room, and Peter and John, and I would speculate that maybe even the healed man is with them at this point. He's been healed by Jesus. His faith is taking root. He wasn't healed by his own faith. He was healed by the faith of Peter, but he's in it to win it now, and so he's probably tailing them and following them, and so he was probably up there with them too. They're all gathered together with the brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, Upper room again, I say. That had to be where they were at. I can't think of another place. I searched the scripture. I didn't find anything whatsoever that would... And and, and you know, the, the cool thing, as I kind of mentioned and alluded to, is that we are really in that phase Uh, as a church together, as a core group. We have this small core group that gathers in this place consistently. And what do we do here? We pray, and we see in Acts 1 that the apostles did a lot of teaching. There was prayer. There were miracles and things done. I haven't done any miracles. Probably won't. Uh, I try. There's been times where I'm like, you know, it's just, you know, nothing happens. And I do believe that God still can do those things, and uh, maybe my faith is too small. I don't know. But we are in that phase, that core phase, much like this church. Now, the church, yeah, is bigger, it's larger, and, and the church today is a lot bigger and larger, but we're a small group, small core group of a church, and we're gathering here, and guess what? In the narrative, in the storyline, in the biblical narrative, the church started small, and it began to expand, and it spread and planted more churches, and that's precisely what we want to do as a small core group right now. You know, we, we didn't uh, pray and say, Lord, we just want to have this small location at Orangeburg and McHenry and fill our hearts with contentment and let us just enjoy it. Well, we did pray that, but we said, man, give us a passion and desire to reach this city. It's, it's in trouble, you know. The world is in trouble. It's falling apart, man. People need Christ. They're in bondage to sin. And so we're like this core group. We gather here, and there's teaching and prayer, and we're singing songs, and they did all those things. So it's a really good parallel for us. Now, what do you suppose the friends were doing um, while Peter, John, and the, the guy that was a lame beggar who had been healed, what do you think they were doing while those three men were before the Sanhedrin being scrutinized for their faith and for their ministry? Well, I suspect that they were probably praying during that time. I I suspect that they were praying. We don't see anything in Scripture that seems to indicate that other than in Acts 12.5, we see something incredible that says that When Peter was kept in prison, he was locked up. It says that the church put forth earnest prayer for him to God. And so this church, this early church, was a prayerful church. They were always praying together and praying. And so 
I suspect that they were praying while these men were before the highest religious court in all of the land. I, I, I would bet money that they were praying, man, that they were praying for their release, that they were praying that the gospel would go forth, that they were praying for the things of God to be made manifest. I, I'm, I'm pretty certain that they were doing that. And, and, and why? It's because of what they were doing in Acts 12.5 later and the fact that even in Acts 1 we see that they were devoted to prayer. They were a praying people, man. They were a praying people. The early church devoted itself to prayer. They prayed for many, many things as we search the scriptures. You look at the book of Acts. They prayed for things like the continued presence of Jesus Christ. They prayed for the leaders of the church, for the apostles and for pastors and stuff even later on in the, epistle, later on in the epistles. They, they prayed for gospel boldness, boldness to preach Christ. They prayed for God's will to be accomplished. And you know what? They prayed for divine intervention at times. We just saw in Acts 12, 5 that we're praying, man, release Peter, God, so his ministry can continue. The question for us then becomes, are we as a church, and even if you're from another church and you're just visiting, you have no intention of making this church a church because you're from out of town or whatever, glory to God, we're glad you're here. But the question becomes to all of us, regardless of whether you're part of RHC or some other church or, or whatever, the question becomes, are we as a small body of Christ, as individuals in Christ, as individual members of the church, are we emulating the early church? Have we devoted ourselves to prayer? It's a great question. Are we seeking the Father each day for the continued presence of Jesus Christ? So often we seek the Father for everything else under the sun, but are we saying, I just want to sit in your presence? I just want to know that Christ is here. I need his arms of love around me. I need his power. I need to commune with him now. Is that what we pray? Not very often. It's thanks for the food, protect my family, whatever. And it's not that those things are bad things. Are we devoted to prayer? Are we seeking after the continued presence of Christ? Are we praying for the leaders of our churches? Are you guys praying for me? I'm a stinking basket case, man. If you're not praying for me, oh, if I keep going with this level of juice, I might say something really stupid, but I know me. I need your prayer. God. Are you praying for your leaders? Are you praying for gospel boldness? How often do we pray that, God, I know you've called me to be salt and light, Make me that way. Make me unashamed of the name of Jesus in my workplace where there's all these things going on and, and nobody loves you and nobody cares and they treat each other in a ruthless way and it's, it's horrible. Give me boldness in this place. In my home where I'm the only Christian. And for some younger people, that's the case. In my workplace, at my school, at my relative's house. Well, whenever I go over to my family's house, I usually blow it because I'm, I'm not the great, most gracious guy. Maybe I'm too bold and there's too much truth and there's not enough grace. I mean, it can go either way. 
But are we praying for these things? As a new church, are we praying that God would divinely intervene in our community? Number two in car theft, number one in meth abuse, number three in prostitution in Stanislaus County. I know I'm yelling, but it kills me. Are we praying that God would just drop on this place like a bomb? Maybe you're from another community. And you see the needs there. Are you praying that God would divinely intervene? That he would come and send his spirit? He can do it. He did it in Geneva. He did it in Almalanga. He's done it in all sorts of places. He's doing it in China as we speak. Are we praying for these things? Prayer is the starting point, friends. Preaching, singing, fellowship, potlucks, evangelism, and everything else, they're all wonderful things. I love the fellowship of the saints and all that. But prayer comes before all of it. Prayer is the first fruit. Prayer is the starting point. Prayer is to precede all other things. If we put prayer down on the list, if we neglect it, we're not going to get very far as Christians. We're not going to get very far as a church. Ponder your own life for a moment. Ponder your own family for a moment. Ponder your relationships, your work atmosphere. Think of the places where you interact, where you're at, where you live your life. Think about your functions and your activities and all those things. And ask yourself this question, where is prayer? Is it down on the list? Maybe that's the reason for your troubles. Maybe that's the reason for your weakness, for your sickness, for disunity, for strife, for your lack of joy, or whatever. The list is a thousand topics long. Maybe because we have put prayer down on the list and it's, it's running last, it's in dead last, maybe that's the reason why we're dealing with so many things. So many things that we ought not to have to deal with. Man, you know, when we read the book of Acts and we study it, the early church was devoted to prayer. And, and not just devoted, but they put it first. We'll see the patterns. It's like before they do anything, they're praying. Before they do anything, they're praying. Before they do anything, they're praying. They were praying, praying, praying. Before we had a building and ever met for the first time, there was a small group of guys praying. And I suspect that we should have been together earlier than when we started praying and praying then. We can't pray too much, but we certainly can pray too little. We can. Now, we're not absolutely certain as to what the early church was doing when these guys were before the Sanhedrin, but since... They exalted prayer and put it in the proper place. We can deduce that they were praying during that time. I believe they were, and we'll see as we continue to move through the narrative all these prayer moments where they were coming together. And our entire passage today is about prayer. Incredible stuff. So, Peter and John came to their friends, and probably the guy that was healed. They came to their friends, and they told them, 
what the Sanhedrin said. Basically, they said, friends, the religious leaders warned us not to teach or speak in the name of Jesus again. They just plainly told them what had happened. Now look at how they responded in 24 and 25. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. That's how they began their prayer. The church recognized this great threat because it was a great threat made by the Sanhedrin. They recognized the great threat and immediately responded by posting on Facebook how displeased they were with the Sanhedrin. No, they didn't do that. They immediately responded by blogging about the Sanhedrin's theological errors. Mmm, I win. No, they responded by contacting their local senator to share their concerns. Diane Feistein, I know that you're against gun control and everything else, but we got a problem here. They're not going to let us speak the name of Jesus. Please hang up and dial again. Oh, my God. Well, no, they didn't do that at all. They actually gathered together and immediately responded by protesting out in front of the Sanhedrin with a bunch of picket signs. Jesus, Jesus. No, they didn't do any of those things. But aren't those the things that we do? I mean, usually when there's a problem, when there's a threat, when there's an issue, the first thing we do, respond in our own power, and we begin to type on Facebook, ah, or whatever it is. What did they do? They came together and began to pray. Why? Because prayer is the starting point. Now, I can't wait to examine their prayer together. Let's begin to look at it. It's really, really amazing. The first thing we notice in verse 24 is the unity of their prayer. It says, they lifted their voices together to God. Okay, before they even really uttered anything, they came together as one voice. Now, this has to mean, it has to infer, it has to imply that someone had to instruct them on what to pray for. Okay, it could be just by the power of the Holy Spirit. They all heard the threat and they all kind of prayed the same thing together and it was this kind of miraculous thing or maybe just a few people prayed out loud and everyone prayed in agreement with it. I I don't know, but it it looks to me like since they were so unified about this, they came together, all their voices were lifted up. It says they lifted their voices, so everyone essentially here kind of lifted their voices and prayed the same thing. Someone had to tell them. Someone had to say something like, okay, the Sanhedrin has made their threats. Let's pray for something in particular. Let's pray for this. Let's pray for that. Maybe Peter or John instructed them to pray in particular about the situation. Now, (laughs) have you ever been in a prayer circle that where, you know, you got a group of people and we're going to pray for this? Everyone just, it's going to be like this passage. And everyone's doing it and all of a sudden there's someone, and grandma. Where'd that come from? All of a sudden they bring in their whole thing and they're not even praying on the topic anymore and they're praying for something completely off target. It's not that that's inherently bad, but I always sit there going, what the heck? They're they're praying for the temperatures in Grass Valley tomorrow right now? I mean, have you ever been in one of those circles? Is that like the awkward thing? Or some of you just go, oh, hallelujah, yeah. Just lift it all up right now. Just bring it all before the throne of God. All are welcome. 
I don't usually do that. I'm usually going, somebody elbow him. Tell him that we're praying for this. Tell, tell, <laughs> tell, tell him we're supposed to be praying for chairs for our church. You know, whatever. They're praying for recliners. I like that prayer. You know, whatever. I, I don't... It just, it's a funny thing, though, right? It's a weird thing. It's awkward. And, and there's, there's always somebody. I mean, you could have 10 people together, and, oh, and it's just this thing, and all of a sudden, this guy's singing a different song, man, and, or this gal, you know, and you're like, okay. Well, that wasn't happening in our text. See, these people lifted up their voices together to God. They were unified, even unified on the topic that we're going to get to. So it's really, really neat. There wasn't this thing, and we pray for this, this, and all of a sudden someone comes out of nowhere and just starts asking for their dog's leg to get healed or something or whatever it is. It happens, especially when you do youth ministry. Kids pray for the craziest things. My hamster. I'm like, it's a rat. (laughs) Who cares? (laughs) This is its tail, you know? Um, Anyways. We've all experienced that before, and, and, and yet in our text, we don't see that. We see people gathered together with one voice praying to God. There's always somebody there that goofs that up, but praise God for them. And you know what? They're just, they're just trying to get more things covered. Now, because of the unity, I believe these people were instructed, pray for this. Then they began to pray with one voice. And how did they begin that prayer? In unified voices, they said, Sovereign Lord. The word Lord here is a rare one in the New Testament. Um, It is one that, you know, we see the, the name or the word or the title Lord in the New Testament. We see it in Scripture very often, but... Here it's used a little differently in in some of those other places. It's not used very often in in this sense here. Uh, We might translate the word Lord as despot, not desperate, (laughs) despot. A despot is one who exercises absolute power and authority. So Lord here is the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew word for Lord in Exodus 20.11, which says what? Exodus 20.11 says, For in six days the Lord, despot, made the heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord, despot, same translation, different language, blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. This group, these friends, this small core group, began their prayer by assigning the highest level of leadership in the known universe to God as the sovereign Lord. They continued to affirm God's sovereignty and authority by saying what? They said, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them? Now, this could have been a direct quote from Exodus 20.11 because I just read it. You heard it. I think we even sang about some of it in a song earlier. This could have been a direct quote from that. These people knew the scripture and they were probably praying the scripture back to God. Now, the important thing is that the early church understood that God is the sovereign Lord who created all things. Now, that just seems like a no-brainer, right? Well, of course they'd know that. Who doesn't know that? A whole lot of people that call themselves Christians. You, it would spin your head to know how many Christians actually believe in evolution. They believe that God began the process of creating and that evolution finished it. That's what they believe. They've got this mixed sort of belief of a little bit of science, a little bit of 
miraculous or whatever, and, and that's where they've landed. Now, I don't believe that at all. I believe the Scripture is the Scripture. The truth is the truth. God created the heavens and the earth, everything in them, people and all that, and I believe he did it in six literal days. You can't translate day to mean a thousand years or anything in the Hebrew text back there in Genesis 1, Genesis 2. But it's, they, these people knew that. You know, they got that doctrine of God right. He's the sovereign Lord. He's the despot. He is the creator, ultimate authority, highest level, nobody above him. They got that. And we need to get that as a church. If we play around with some of the philosophies of this day and age, we just get mixed up. We lose our witness. We run down rabbit holes. And it's just, it's unbelievable what happens. We got to get these things right. Bible is clear about God being the creator, about him being sovereign, about him being the Lord, about him being in total control over all things. Nothing happens without passing through his hand or by his hand. I mean, that's just reality according to scripture. They understood this and then they responded to God properly because you can't respond to God properly in worship or anything if you don't understand some of these things. How can you worship him as the sole creator if he created and started a process of evolution? We have to now worship him and molecules and protoplasms and chimpanzees. Because I used to be one, <laughs> you know, right? You're going to rob from God. He's the one that did it all. And the church got this. They knew that he was the sovereign Lord. They understood his lordship. They understood his creatorship. Now look at verse 25. It says, who... Through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. Here they declared that God is the revealer of prophetic truth. That the Lord said something special through his servant King David long ago through the Holy Spirit concerning the events of that particular day. Look at the rest of 25 and 26. They said, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. This is a direct quote from the psalm that John read earlier, Psalm 2. And it's a direct quote from that, well, the song was a direct quote that we sang earlier. Did you write that song by chance, Aaron? Was that the song that you wrote? You wrote that last night? Thank you, brother. Not enough of that happening in churches. We're just regurgitating everything else that everyone's ever saying. Here you are taking your time. You remodeled this place with a handful of people. Now you're writing songs. Who are you? Oh, oh it's unbelievable. Beautiful song. Excellent song. Totally captures the essence of Psalm 2. And that's essentially what they were quoting back to God in their prayer. In Psalm 2, King David prophesied about how people and how kings would gather against the Messiah, how they would gather against the sovereign Lord in the future about a thousand years later. And this is what happened during Jesus' ministry, did it not? The religious leaders came against him. They opposed him and plotted for how to kill him. And then they arrested him and Herod Antipas, the king of Israel, opposed him. Oh, he released him, but he still opposed him. He didn't worship him. And then Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, opposed him. He let him be killed. And the religious leaders stirred up multitudes of Jews who opposed him. And all of it culminated with a band of Roman Gentiles crucifying Jesus on a wooden cross. That is what King David prophesied about, and that is what happened. In verse 27, the prayer group applied David's prophecy directly to Jesus. Look at it with me. 
For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Man, they nailed it. They tied that past prophetic thing to the events that happened with Jesus, and they're now praying this back to God. They're basically saying, God, you are our sovereign ruler and creator who foretold through our forefather, King David, by the Holy Spirit that the world would turn against your servant, Jesus Christ. And it happened here where? In Jerusalem. That's where they're doing this. By the hands of Herod, Pilate, the Gentiles, and the peoples of Israel. In verse 28, they added an incredible statement about God's sovereign choice and pre-planning. Look at 28 with me. They said, God, you did all these things to do whatever your hand and your plan had what? Predestined to take place. Ultimately, they said, paraphrased, all that took place took place according to your sovereign will and plan. It's by your hand that these things came to pass. Now, immediately, I'm reminded of Isaiah 53, 3 to 10. Immediately. You can turn there if you want. Isaiah 53, 3 to 10. I'll read it aloud. Isaiah 53, 3 to 10. What does it say? What did Isaiah pen about these things that would happen? He said, he, that's Jesus, the Messiah that would come, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, by God, it says, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crucified for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And he says he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who, consi who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And then listen, it says, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet... It was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was God's plan. God used sinful men, their wickedness, their selfishness, their passions, their desires, their lusts. God used them to accomplish his purpose. He didn't have to react to them. He orchestrated that way. He didn't have to whisper in their ear, now become a really bad sinner and do these things for me so I can accomplish my will. Men are already fallen sinners. It was God's plan. It was God's will that Jesus would be crushed. As they prayed, they said that God prorizo or predestined for these things to happen. Prorizo means to come to a decision beforehand, to decide beforehand, to determine ahead of time, to decide upon ahead of time. 
This word is the same word that's used in Ephesians 1.5 where God had already decided that through Jesus Christ he would bring his people to himself as his sons and daughters. Now here's the thing. Some of you right now might be thinking, oh, here comes Calvinism. This is not Calvinism. This is what the very Word of God teaches in the original language. In fact, this doctrine of predestination was put on paper thousands of years before John Calvin ever breathed a breath. Now, yes, it's mysterious. Yes, it needs to be handled with humility. And you don't just take it and exalt it above all other things and start beating a drum and start assassinating people with it. Because that's what people do. I know I was one of them not long ago. What a fool. But predestination means what it means. It just means what it means. And it always means the same thing in the original language. It just does. Yes, these things are mysterious. Yes, they challenge our minds. Yes, they act as a goad against our rationale and logic. And yes, they seem to contradict most of what is being taught about salvation in churches today. But none of that actually changes the truth of what God's word plainly says. Truth is truth and it stands forever. Error is error and it will come to an end. And here's the thing that we always forget we as human beings are prone to error, not truth. And so when we come to the Word of God and we begin to see what it says, may we humbly remember that we are more prone to error than to truth. But you know, my prayer and hope for us as a church, beyond anything else, really, obviously we want to get the gospel out there and all that stuff, that's huge, that's our primary purpose here, but my hope and prayer is that we as a church would be diligent in seeking to understand Scripture. There is such a lack of that in churches today. Pastors are just feeding people six points on how to have a better marriage. Now go out and have a better marriage. And people are always wondering, why I don't ever have a better marriage? I can't do those six things. Why? Man, my hope and prayer is that we would be diligent, that we would be like borderline Berean. No, not borderline. We'd cross the border. Hey, I'm Berean. That we would seek out what the Scriptures teach, that we would compare what the authors and the preachers of God's Word, we would compare those things to Scripture. We would be diligent in knowing and understanding Scripture. And that we would always remain willing to compare our beliefs traditions and theologies with the truth of scripture and that we would always be humble enough to allow the holy spirit to enlighten and transform us may we be like the early church who accepted the truth with childlike faith and this applies to the whole of our being to every aspect of truth to every viewpoint and to every doctrine not just to one or two of them not just to predestination but the whole cadre so important that we come to the Word of God with an open mind, an open heart, with a full realization that we are so prone to error. I come at the Word of God in a state of error most of the time. And then I tend to make it say what I want it to say or what others taught me. And it works both ways. Wherever you find yourself, whatever theological stream you swim in, good night, there's error all over the place. But this word of God is perfect. May we be diligent in seeking it out and understanding it and knowing it. And what would James say? Don't just know it. He would say what? 
live it. Knowing it and not living it cancels it out. Living it and not knowing it, what the heck is that? <laughs> it's a two-way street. So God predestined for those things to happen to Jesus, and he predestined to draw us, to gather us, and to bring us into him. And I'm so glad that he did that. Aren't you? Aren't you glad that he's a God who knows what he's doing? And he makes choices, and they're firm, and nothing can manipulate or shake those or change those. You know, one of the great doctrines about God is that he's immutable. He doesn't change. He doesn't change. His position's fixed. What he's done is fixed. The devil can't sway or swerve him, and neither can we. And I'm so glad that God is a God who predestines, that God is a God who chooses, and God is a God who's revealed truth to us. Praise him for that. As we move to verse 29, we will see their request. Everything up to this point in their prayer has been about the glorification and exaltation of God. All prayers should begin this way, should they not? So often we just start rambling off. Why don't we say, you are a glorious, sovereign God who's in control of all things. You're the creator that made all this stuff. Wow. Thank you for that. You are beautiful. You are amazing. And then now, I'm a sinner. Help me. And then help my family. And then we transition. Why don't we begin our prayers with the exaltation and glorification of our sovereign Lord and King and Creator? That's what they did. All prayers should begin this way. We should always begin with the glory and majesty of God, of who He is. And when we are pressed, when we are persecuted or discouraged, we should recite God's promises back to him. God, you said this about those who love you, or this about your servants, or this about the future. Our reciting God's promises back to him may not physically change the outcome of our situation. It may be God's will. Obviously, it is that we're going through this. It may not alter or change it, but it certainly can bring us perspective. It certainly can bring us strength. It can bring us peace and comfort to make it through. Man, when we come to God and say, God, you said this to David. You said this to Jeremiah. I'm bringing it to your attention. And so often we say, just rescue me. Maybe it's not his will to rescue you. Maybe there's a bigger purpose behind it. Maybe there's deep teaching behind it. Who knows? God's got his hand on everything. He's working in so many different angles. We're like, ugh. But I think there's that, a, a touch of that here in our text. I think there's that aspect to their prayer in our text. The church was made aware of the Sanhedrin's threats, and then they prayerfully declared who God is, the sovereign ruler, and what he's done as the creator, and then they recited back to him how he predestined for all this to happen. This was meant to bring them comfort. We do the same thing when something happens in our lives or when our lives spin out of control, don't we? So often we say, God, you're in control of all this big mess. You're, you're in control. I need to recognize that right now. So you know what? Ultimately, you have your hand on this. It's never as bad as it could be, I suppose. We do that so often, and I think there's a tinge of that here. Now, let's look at 29 to 30 to see their request. See, everything up till now has just been exaltation and glorification. And now they're going to ask him for something in particular. Incredible. And now, Lord, they said, Look upon their threats, that's the Sanhedrin, and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all 
boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. This is one of the most selfless prayers I've ever seen in Scripture. And, and I'm not saying that self-filled prayers, look at the Psalms. You talk about self rescue me. It's all David crying out and screaming out. And there's nothing wrong with that. They wouldn't be in Scripture if it was an indictment. God loves it when we, when we, go, you know, when we seek him and, and cry out our needs to him. But this is one of the most selfless prayers I've ever seen in Scripture. Knowing that the Sanhedrin, a mighty force in all honesty, was going to come against them with hell and Hades, they prayed not for rescue, not for deliverance, not for safety, but for boldness to continue to speak the name of Jesus. Peter and John's testimony about what had happened in the Hall of Hewn Stone didn't discourage or frighten this group. It encouraged and emboldened them. Before going out into the streets, to the marketplaces, to the synagogues or wherever, these folks prayed to the Lord for courage to do as Peter and John had done. Verse 30 says that they prayed for boldness to proclaim the name of Jesus while God was healing people and performing miracles and wonders through these apostles. Oh, so powerful what they're asking for. God, give us boldness to tie all that you do through us to Jesus and to call people to repentance and faith just as Peter and John had done on the day of Pentecost in Solomon's portico and in the hall of hewn stone before your enemies. That's their heart cry. That's what they asked for. When I read that, I was filled with shame. I, I just, I felt like, I don't get it. Because when, when, when the forces come against me, I'm not asking to stand firm. Not often enough, at least. I'm asking for for a shield, I'm asking for protection, I'm asking for an escape route. God, get me out of that workplace. It's unbelievable. Get me a new job. Seek to be bold there, my son. Oh. Now, <laughs> right after they prayed, something incredible happened. Look at 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. The upper room was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And when they went out and spoke the word of God, the gospel, they went out and did all of that, it says, with boldness. Bottom line, God answered their prayer. The question for us becomes, how can we, as the people of God, be shook like this? How can we, as the people of God, be filled with the Holy Spirit and boldness? And I'll tell you how. We've got to begin to pray according to God's will. It was God's will that the gospel go forth. The early Christians knew this, and so they prayed for boldness to push the gospel forward, 
to bring it into their community, to bring it into the surrounding communities, to bring it into other nations, to bring it across the world. The early Christians knew this, and so they prayed for boldness to push the gospel forward. That is exactly what God desired, and that is exactly why he granted them their request. And guess what? The shaking of the upper room was his confirmation. You've prayed according to my will. May it be so. I will shake this place. I will shake the nations. I will fill you with the Holy Spirit. I will equip you to do that. You will be bold. Confirmed with the shaking of a room. Our problem today is that we're too caught up with our own needs, our own desires, and our own problems. We become completely captivated and distracted by them. This is why our prayers are like, you know, we're, we're, when we're praying, we're constantly praying for our stuff and for our little realm and our little world and all of our little things. And, and, and I believe this is why our prayers are like little ricocheting bullets that just bounce all over the room and never seem to make it through the ceiling. They just never seem to get out there. And I think the reason is because we're asking for the wrong things. Do you not know that your life, marriage, family, friendships, and career all exist for the glory of God and for the advancement of the gospel and for the advancement of His church? That is God's will according to the Scriptures. That's it. That's why He commissioned the church. And we're so busy praying for all these little things and all that, and it's not that those things are important. But some of those troubles that you have in your life have been ordained by a loving Father to shape and change you, and we're praying against those things. Instead of saying, God, give me boldness to speak in my workplace. God, give me courage to give more than I would normally. You know, I'm, I, I don't quite bring that full... Whatever it is, we're not seeking Him according to His will, according to the Scripture. And therefore, things just aren't happening. Pray according to God's will. Seek after His desires. Petition Him for power to accomplish His goals. And guess what? You will be filled with power. Now, for many of us, this will require an exchange of our little blurb of a life for the life that God has for us within His great and grand story, which is playing out in the universe. All of creation is God's stage. It really is. It's like one big movie set. And you have God who's the director and you have Jesus who's the hero and who, you have Satan who's the devil, who's the enemy, who's the villain of the story. And who are we? We're the bride of the hero. And see, so some of us are so captivated by our own little world and our own little small tale of an existence because everything is just about this little cluster of people and this little group, and, and, and we're wondering why there's so much trouble and, and so many problems, and we can't seem to get out of this ditch that we've seemed to fall in, and, and maybe it's because we just missed the bigger story that's playing out in all creation. And what a grand story it is. Now, I'm not trying to... Uh, undermine the importance of our little issues and things that we have. Some of us have been so damaged, we don't know how to get through things. I get it, there's counseling, there's things. But some of us just need to shift our perspective off of our little story 
and look at the grand theme, the grand theme of God's salvation throughout creation and say, that's the story I want to be a part of. I've actually been saved, sanctified, and brought into it. And so let me begin to be a cast member in this instead of just, oh, it's just this. That's what we need. Don't you want to be a part of the grand narrative? Aren't you tired of your little story? I am. It's bigger. You know, part of the reason why and my passion was to plant a church so I could get the Baker clan out of the little narrative. And it is something bigger and scary. And there was a bunch of people that said, we're tired of our story too. It's been cool, but God's got something bigger and greater happening throughout the universe. We want to be a part of that. Are you a cast member in his story? Are you a man or woman of the gospel? Are you a young person of the gospel? Are you wrapped up in your little tale? We are commanded by God to apply the gospel to every aspect of our lives, to our friendships, jobs, households, families, marriages, finances, to every aspect of who we are, which means that is a command to be in God's grand story that's playing out, not in your own little world. What you have doesn't belong to you. It belongs to the big meta-narrative that's playing out. You belong to the big narrative that's playing out. God has chosen you by his sovereign hand to bring you into it. Amazing. If you can begin to shift the way that you think about these things, you realize, I'm in a little narrative. I've reduced it down to this. My whole existence is this. If you begin to realize that and to seek God, to be drawn into it, probably through his church, where the great entry point into his whole story, we mobilize and come together and train one another, love one another, equip one another so that we can be partakers in his grand narrative. If you begin to do these things, guess what happens? You will be shaken and filled. Your life will change. Your marriage will change. Your family will change. Your job will change. Your friendships will change. Everything will change. And guess what? You'll probably acquire some new enemies. Glory to God. For if God is on your side, who can stand against you? It's not a popular story that's playing out. The world despises it. I can tell you, after 30 years of living in the world... I wouldn't exchange it and go back to that at all, ever. Mm. You begin to do these things, you will be shaken and filled. Your life changes. Everything changes. Everything begins to change. Every one of us, literally every one of us, has been duped in some way, shape, or form into embracing a life that falls radically short of what God calls us to embrace and live. If we have been living solely for ourselves or for others, or if we have been stuck in a vortex of self-pity, shame, guilt, anger, or addiction, we have been duped. We have been duped. God has called us to live in his story, not that one. His rescue via the cross was meant to deliver you out of that story and to draw you into his grand narrative. So often we don't see it that way, and we stay in the patterns, we stay in the unhealthiness, Some of us need deeper help. Amen. 
but what do you think was accomplished on the cross? That you could just receive Jesus and then stay in this little narrative? No. You've been brought into something much more grand and beautiful and amazing. God has called us to live in his story, not that one. There is power available to release you. There is mercy there to forgive you. There is grace there to accept you. All of it is in Christ. He knows who and what you've been living for right now as you sit in your seat. He knows. And I believe his invitation to each of us today is a merciful and gracious one. God has not flooded this place with his wrath, even though my voice is loud. He has not flooded this place with wrath and anger and judgment. He does not desire to crush us under his gavel. No, God is graciously inviting us into his story right now. If you have yet to believe in Jesus Christ, forsake your story. Just turn from it. Turn from your sins. Turn from your little life of habitual sin, of whatever it is. Turn from that life. Turn from those sins and place your faith and trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you have already done that, if you're a Christian, take a stand today and forsake the little life that you've reduced your life down to. Seek out the will of God as revealed in Scripture. Pray according to His will. Embrace the mission of God. Give your heart and life entirely to Him and to His cause. Give your family to Him. Give your spouse to Him. Give your children to Him. Give your life to Him. Give your job and friends to Him. Give your sins and struggles and that vortex to Him. Lay them at the foot of the cross. And from this day forward, don't look back. Don't look back. Don't look to the sides. Keep looking up. Keep looking up. Together with Christ, we can be a part of the story together. God hasn't just cast one or two. It's a multitude that's as many grains as there is of sand on the seashore. He's got a big church. We can walk this road together. We can struggle through things together. We can be a part of the grand narrative together, playing our part at advancing the gospel of grace.